0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
3: Ch-ch-chumba.
0: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Hello, I'm George Belshaw from the Love Tennis podcast, which is brought to you by Manscapes, who are below the best in men's below-the-waist grooming manscape have kindly teamed up with the love tennis podcast so you that's right you can get a 20 percent discount on their products as well as free shipping because who doesn't love that all you have to do is simply enter the discount code love tennis that's l-o-v-e-t-e-n-n-i-s at manscaped.com that's love tennis at manscaped.com I've been checking out a few of their products this week, uh, as the rest of the Love Tennis podcast team have, after Manscaped kindly sent us um, a few things to try. Not only do they offer products below the belt, but I've been particularly enjoying the Weed Whacker, which takes care of all that stray nose and ear hair. I know James is a big fan of the ball deodorant and toner. In fact, he won't stop going on about it. And Calvin has become borderline obsessive over his trusty lawnmower 4.0. If you fancy trying out any of those products um, and supporting us at the podcast, then please get on board by using our code LoveTennis. that's L-O-V-E-T-E-N-N-I-S, at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped welcome back to the love tennis podcast it's the second love tennis podcast in a row that you get the pain to your ears of me hosting but we're flipping things up this week. We're doing another two-parter to fit in with James Gray's weird Beijing schedule. But this week, we're meeting in early doors. So we've got him for part one. And then Calvin and I will review the week's action in part two. So for part one, we have Del Potro's emotional finish. Is it the end for the big man? And if so, could it have been any more emotional? We've got Daniel Medvedev closing in on the world number one spot this month. But does it mean as much? Um, Andy Murray, he's still concerned about his coaching situation, despite a good win over Alexander Bublik. And then we've got a form of equality happening at Wimbledon. But are they just ripping people (laughs) off? So, as I mentioned before, I have James Gray with me from Beijing. James, how are you?
2: I'm well, I'm coming from the National Aquatic Centre today, I know you're thinking there's no swimming at the Winter Olympics, but that is in fact where they've built the curling rink, so uh, that's something that I know a lot of people back home will be watching a lot of as well.
3: Very exciting, and of course we have our very own coaching phenomenon, Calvin Betton. Calvin how's it going?
4: Yeah, very well, very well, I'm just thinking that'd be a great Olympic sport, a Winter Olympic sport, wouldn't it, like cold water swimming?
3: Yeah, ice (laughs) swimming,
4: yeah. No, no yeah. wet
3: suits, no dry suits. You just yeah. in the water, how long you can swim for? Yeah. Um, a distance or how long you survive? I don't know. Could
2: could be.
4: I mean, I'm sure there's worse. Until you um, get behind that um, Olympic. I'll Nike pitch athlete. it to
2: the IOC at the next press conference. Yeah, we could definitely go for that. Um, let,
3: let, let's kick off with a man. Who we were all very sad to potentially be seeing the back of? Um, Calvin, last week we spoke a bit about how Juan Martin was probably your favourite player. Um, it was pretty emotional, wasn't it, the finish? He was uh, in tears on court as he served um, in defeat to Del Bonis. Um, big cries of Ole, 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 Del Po, Del Po. All very moving, emotional. How did it feel kind of watching those clips, seeing someone you you have such affinity with, um, really feeling such overwhelming emotions?
4: Yeah, it was sad, weren't it? I mean, I think his comments before suggested that he wasn't going to be competitive. I think. So I, I think he still sort of said that he, he hadn't managed to get rid of the injury that is the reason he's retiring. So it was a strange one where he, he got a wild card, but I don't think anybody expected him winning or even making it close, which was kind of sad to see really um, but yeah it was disappointing but I think it was kind of something that we all knew was, was going to happen wasn't it and yeah it was it was pretty rough wasn't it
3: Dalbonis Del- was uh, playing a lot of drop shots and getting a lot of hate on uh, social media <laughs> but uh, yeah. you've got to try and win the match don't you you can't
2: really have a him. scumbag absolute scumbag <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah I mean the tennis fans are a bit strange in that respect aren't they so um yeah i didn't think he did anything wrong it was just pretty pretty sad to see wasn't it but i, I can't see him play I, has he officially announced it now because there's
3: uh not quite he withdrew from you know, but there hasn't been the official it's definitely over over but it, it seems like right.
2: yeah i had a very weird experience with it where i saw him do the press conference where he said that those two tournaments would be his last ones and obviously, as as you mentioned, I'm in China, so you get a slightly skewed view on everything because you're not always on Wi-Fi that you're able to view Twitter on and, um, you know, you don't, you're not following the news in the same way. And about three days later, I got a push notification from the BBC saying, uh, you know, Del Potro hints he might retire. And I was like, hang on, like, he's, he's retired. Like, there's no hint about it. There's no might about it. He's definitely retiring. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a slightly strange experience through through that lens, if you like. Uh, you know, he, he's someone who I think might have several more comebacks in him. You know, that press conference where he said, this is my life. This is everything to me. It's a refreshing to see someone who, you know, clearly loves tennis so much. And not that there aren't lots of people out there like that. But B, it's, it makes me think that this won't be the only time he retires. Um, you know, he he is in the end only 33 He might take two years off tennis and realise that he's been waking up for three months and not feeling his knee in the morning and go, well, hang on, maybe I could come back. Maybe I could really go. And, you know, why couldn't he come back? I mean, why couldn't he play doubles? I I don't know how good he is at the net, but with his weapons, I imagine he'd be a pretty handy, handy doubles player. And um, as Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokanakis would say, you don't have to play Serb and Volley to be good at doubles.
3: I wanted to read you both um, a tribute from Francis Tierfo this week, which I thought was probably the best of the bunch. You know, you had everyone kind of coming in being like, oh, super sad. But I thought this Instagram post was t- from Tierfo was really heartfelt. I'm not going to try and read it in his accent. And some of the things he says, I probably can't. <laughs> thank God. Uh, but
1: <laughs>
3: Man, this is crazy. I really hope this ain't your last match. But if it is, I want to say thank you. You were my favourite player growing up. I remember watching you at the City Open as a kid. You were the first pro to ever sign a ball for me. After that, I was a mega fan. I remember saying to my coach, this guy's going to win the US Open one day, and you did it. I cried in 2009 when you did. I sound like a complete fanboy right now because I am. What you went through in your career and still achieved what you did is remarkable. You're a Hall of Famer in my eyes, living legend. I've got nothing but love and respect for you, my man. Walk with your head up forever, man. You left a big mark on the game. James, pretty
2: nice. Well, you I mean, there's 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 a lot in there. And yeah, it's always nice when you kind of see the inspiration that these guys provide. And obviously, you know, TFO is a top 50 player. He's a, he's a great player. And and you can kind of see the actual, the progression of that. But it makes me think, and, and this is the only question there is to ask about Juan Martin Del Potcher, isn't it? It's like, what if? And it, It makes me think, you know, what could he have achieved? Hilarious that TFO predicted he was going to win the US Open. I'd love to know. I mean, Francis TFO must have been like maybe 10 or 11 when he predicted Juan Martino Potro win the US Open. I would love to know how many players Francis 10-year-old Francis TFO predicted to win the US Open that year, let alone in his lifetime. Um, I mean, how many of George... (laughs) you're someone who reminds me of Martin Del Potro because you're tall, you think you've got a massive serve and you can't stay fit for more than six months. Um, <laughs> like what do you have the same kind of kindred spirit with him?
3: Yeah. I mean, I I really love watching him. I mean, I, I, I'm probably yeah very similar to Del Potro in terms of uh, after his initial wrist injuries. Cause my, backhand I do just quite often slice it quite deep because I don't trust it like like it's uh, (laughs) although I do have a one-hander of the two um but yeah I mean look he's he's always been someone I've enjoyed watching and as Calvin kind of said last week I think it was always the fact he's able to play his best tennis against the best guys that was probably the thing I liked most about him you know some some of the other guys who've been pretty close haven't necessarily played their best matches against the big guys. You didn't necessarily believe they could win. Whereas if you saw Del Potro against any of those guys, I genuinely felt it was about a 50 50 every time. Um, obviously, the stats don't exactly read like that, but it, it did feel like he could take any of them out at any moment, which, as tfo says, kind of considering everything he's been through, um, is, is pretty remarkable. I, I would say I agree as well that he'll end up in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if you guys agree on that. I know it's not the most important thing in tennis, but some people do get kind of obsessed with that sort of thing. Probably a bit more American, I suppose.
2: Um, I, uh-huh. I mean, what does it mean?
3: What does it mean? For, for context, I'm pretty sure Michael Stitch has made it into the Hall of Fame. So perhaps the bar's not not as high as it could be.
4: Yeah, it's it's a I there's any I mean I I don't get any Hall of Fames to be honest. They're they're all really strange, aren't they? That like, yeah, I've I've not got a load to say on it. I think they're a bit a bit silly to be honest.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Let, let's How many grand sounds do you think he should he would have won then, Calvin? Because that's that's the question that we're all asking. Like we've managed to go ten minutes without saying it. But how many grand sounds do you think he would have won in barring injury?
4: Um we asked last week and I I think It's a difficult one because I think we always say this if he stayed fully fit. But I do think without sounding like a bore, I do think the way that he played and his physiology meant that there was no chance he was ever going to stay fully fit. Um, But I think hypothetically, if he had, I expected he'd have have had more than five, um, I think. Maybe around about five, I would think. But I think the big thing what he would have done was he'd have had a huge impact on how many each of the others had. I think he'd have taken care of of some of the other some of the big players when they might have won them. And then that might have had an effect on how many Andy Murray ended up winning because Murray had a pretty good record against Dale Potro and that kind of thing. So um, I could see him have beaten, certainly the US Open, I think he'd have done a lot of damage. And he's pretty handy at Wimbledon as well. Like if you look at his losses at Wimbledon, they tend to be in five sets against Nadal and people like that. And you think he's pretty, you know, wouldn't have surprised me if he'd had a decent run there. I mean, he missed he's 33 now. He missed probably six years at his prime, if we're honest. Yeah. That's uh, and, and still won a slam and was still still came back and made top five in the world without a backhand.
3: And the context of that slam when of course beating Nadal and Federer back to back. I mean that's
4: And Roddick as well. Like idea. that gets forgotten as well that Roddick yeah. was the third yeah. best player in the world. Then he beat I I remember when it happened, he he pretty much destroyed, I mean he absolutely ragged old Nadal. I remember that match now. I've never seen anybody destroy Nadal in that way. Um, And Roddick was the third best player in the world at the time. He beat him and then he beat um, Federer in the final. I think at the time he might have been the only player to have beaten one, two and three in succession to win a slam.
2: I mean, he's also not got a bad clay court record, right? I mean, I, I had kind of forgotten that as recently as four years ago, he made a French Open semi-final. Which is, is just and only lost to Nadal. Like, okay, he didn't have the hardest draw in the world, but I think he beat Chilich and he beat Fanini. Um, not Fanini, uh, Isner. You know, Ramos, Vinolas. It's not the it's not the easiest French Open draw in the world. So, I mean, I'm not saying he was an all court player, but I guess when you're as good as he was, you can play on all surfaces to a certain extent.
3: Yeah, and you know, you look at some of the other tournaments over the last few years, and people who've reached the final. I mean. Guys like Ryanich at Wimbledon, do we think, I mean, Del Potro could easily have, if he was fit, he was better than Ryanich. You know, there were guys who have made it through. Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson, yeah, another good example. You know, people have snuck through to these finals that you'd say Del Potro was better than. Do we Do we have a, um, a fondest memory of his career, whether it be a match, a
2: shot, a moment, anything that really... Calvin, you go first. Out? You have um, many more memories to sort through, but...
4: The the one for me that stands out was when he beat team at the I think it was the last US Open he played at, or the one before that maybe. He beat him in five sets on one of like maybe the third court late at night. And I think it was just such an emotional match because it was his his real comeback. Um and from from having all the injury issues that he had, and that was the first time he'd beaten one of the, the very best players in the world at the time. Um I think that's the that's what'll stand out for me. But there were so many. It's like we like said he had he had this way of I guess he used to do the same thing, where he just somehow managed to find himself in dramatic, long, great matches all the time.
2: The one for me... Which one might also go some way to explaining why, why he wasn't that fit. True. <laughs> true, The
3: The one for me that actually really stands out is perhaps what I've not seen that mentioned that much in the last few weeks, but it was, his, um, it was Argentina's first Davis Cup win, and it was one of two sets down to Marin Cilic. I don't know if either of you watched that match, but that 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 was one of the Davis Cup matches I really remember for the atmosphere and how raucous it was. And Chilich was a set away from winning it for Croatia. And Del Potro claws his way back from two sets down to win that. Uh, I think it might have been Del Bonis who won the last match um, to kind of get them over the line. <laughs> I remember that. But I just, that match really stood out and just the emotions that went with that. And you know, similarly to when Murray kind of won that Davis Cup for Great Britain, it, it's really nice seeing these these players we know love and how much that team competition did mean to them um, kind of win it for the first time, James?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a match that maybe anyone else remembers, but the only time I've seen, well, certainly the first, I think it might be the only as well, the only time I've seen Del Potro play in the flesh um, was in the first round of Wimbledon in 2018 against Peter Gajoczik, of all people, you know, just, and it was a routine first round win, but it was on court number three, which as you all know, is my favourite court at Wimbledon. And it was just, you know, sometimes, and I always think every sport loses a lot by being on TV and to really impress upon people how impressive top level sport is. You need to see it up close and to see Del Potro serve on court number three, where you're very close to the players, especially if you sit behind the court you're very close to the players. You know, you're maybe only 20 feet away. You're kind of at ball toss level as well. So you're getting a proper feeling of the serve coming down and, you know, he, he played pretty well. Um, I think he, he won in straight sets. Gachoshi uh, ne- never really, I don't think he broke him in the entire game. He was serving really well. And I genuinely thought he was going to win Wibbledon having watched that. And then he got beaten by Rafa Nadal in five sets in the quarters, but it, it was just a, you know, I didn't, grew up going to a lot of tennis matches um certainly in, in Del Potro's peak I, I wasn't necessarily around or um watched a huge amount of tennis just because of the way way I grew up but to to be able to see him and and get an idea from very close up what he was like as a ball striker was 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 quite special really and you know of course you remember all the very very greatest players that you've seen but to see Juan Martín in, in that kind of slightly more stripped back intimate environment was was quite special too.
4: I think that's that you've made a good point there, James. I think he's one of the, I think there's certain tennis players, certain athletes that you have to see live. It's kind of a phenomenon that, that there are some that there are some brilliant athletes that if you haven't seen live, it, it doesn't really change much. But there are some that, that you really do have to see live. And Del Potro is one of those just, just for the, he's like a, a bit of a freak, isn't he? A bit of a, yeah, the size of him and how hard he hits the ball, the sound that the ball makes when he hits it is is just remarkable. And and I'm yeah, I'm glad I get to saw him quite a few times actually um, at Wimbledon. I was pretty lucky; I saw quite a few of his matches. Just a quick one to any um any real tennis nerds out there, if if you want to catch something a bit different on YouTube, you can catch Del Potro's Orange Bowl final um, against Marin Cilic. I think it's maybe the under 16s um, and it's interesting just to see how sort of their shots have, have changed and the similarities that you can see, but Del Potro doesn't quite look the same. Obviously at, at 16, he's not he's not got his sort of cannon of a, a serve and that kind of thing, but you can see where it's developing into. Um, it's just an interesting, there's about 15 minutes of it on there. There might even be the full match, but yeah.
3: There we go. So if you want to watch... The growth of the Tower of Tandil, follow Calvin's advice don't get on YouTube. Moving on to a, another Tower of Tennis, at least in height, if not with exactly the same weapons. Daniel Medvedev is closing in on the world number one spot this month. Novak Djokovic currently sits on 10,875 points with Medvedev at 9,635. Um, but with some points set to drop off for the Australian Open, Medvedev can now secure the number one spot Djokovic will have been number one for a minimum of 86 consecutive weeks which is I think the second longest run of his career, the previous one being around 122 weeks of course he's been up there as a top dog throughout his career for 361 weeks in total which is obviously a record and a ludicrous amount of time I'll run you through the scenarios very quickly of what Medvedev needs to do to be world number one If he wins in Acapulco, regardless of Djokovic's results in Dubai, he will be world number one on the 28th of February. Similar, if he reaches the final and Djokovic doesn't win Dubai, if Medvedev reaches the semis and Djokovic doesn't reach the final, you get the drift. He just needs to do slightly better than Djokovic in Dubai while he's in Acapulco. If he does achieve this, as we're kind of expecting him to, He'll be the 27th world number one in ATP history and the third Russian to do it after Kafelnikov and Safin. He'll also be, quite interestingly, only the second first time world number one since Djokovic reached top spot in July 2011. Obviously, a big achievement if Medvedev does do this. Is there a feeling that this is slightly tainted by Novak's self imposed exodus from Australia, Calvin?
4: I, I don't think so, really. I mean, we were talking about it in December, really. How we thought Medvedev would ever get to be world number one at some stage this year, and yeah, he's lost points from Australia, but um, that's about it. And that kind of thing happens, you know. You know, it's dips and butts in tennis. I, I don't have any sympathy for him. It's he could have played. It's not injured, right? so I don't see it as it does. No, it's it's a. You could even mark it down as a mental weakness. of Djokovic, he's a bit of a loon. that's why he's not going to be world number one for much longer. (laughs) Um, I
2: I would say it's not tainted because he is the best player in the world. Like, while I uh, credit Novak Djokovic being extremely good, the player that Daniil Medvedev has become over the last well, I guess three years is an extremely good one. And and well look, world rankings aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But it's not like Daniil Medvedev has fluked his way up there. Like we're not talking about, with the greatest of respect, Caroline Wozniaki. And I say that a little bit quietly because actually I know for a fact I've got Danish journalists sat behind me. Um <laughs> but you know we're not talking about someone who has ended up world number one rather than earning their way up there. So I think it's unfair to say that it's tainted. Yes, of course people will look at it that way and people will always view things a certain way, but it's a massive achievement. Um really the the, the measure will be how long he stays there. Being well you know, there's lots of guys who've been world number one for three weeks. I mean, is it is it Philipoosis who was number one for about ten minutes? I, I, I might have got that wrong, but there's there's a few guys who don't have many weeks up there, aren't there?
3: Don't worry, I've got some quiz questions for you in a few minutes, James. But just before we we go on to that, this is obviously, you know, you hear about players kind of talking about winning a slam or reaching world number one. We've spoken a bit about players who've been world number one, but not won a slam. Obviously, Medvedev will have been doing both. What does it mean to be world number one in terms of looking back on their careers? I mean, I'm thinking like people like Vavrinka. we've obviously just been talking about Del Potro. Chilich, you know, these guys are all slam winners. Is there more credence in being a world number one and a slam winner? Does that, will history look back on you more favourably?
4: He's done both though, hasn't he? So um, I think he'll win He'll win more slams. I think actually quick point on what James said there, how long he'll be winning one. I, I, th- I would think he'd keep it for a fair amount of time because he, he wasn't great in the spring and summer last year, was he? So he's not got loads to defend comparatively. I think even if he has a pretty good clay court season he's going to gain a lot of points um so and djokovic has got the French to defend he's got Wimbledon to defend um, um Medvedev's not got a whole lot to defend until us open I don't think so um I would think he'll keep it for it'd be tough for Djokovic to get it back I would think
3: what 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 do you rank higher as his achievement so far though Calvin world number one or winning a slam what, what what's harder to do I suppose is the thrust of what I'm
4: going at there. Uh, I think they're different. I, I, look, you dr- if, if you're given the choice, you could be world number one without winning a slam or win a slam. Most players would take winning a slam. But I would think in if you're as good as Medvedev is, I don't think it, it's really a debate. He'll end up winning multiple slams and he'll have a lot of weeks at world number one. So it won't really be that choice to make. But I think Stan would, for example, Stan Marinka would rather have the career he's had than almost like a male equivalent career of Caroline Wozniacki. Before she won a slam. To be fair, she won a slam in the air. Safanova would be one. Um, Safanova, I think, was was the... Oh, Marcelo Rios was the only only male number one. I think he still is, actually, so it's not a great debate in the men's, is it? No. Rios is still the only male world number one to never win a slam.
3: There's a few more in the women's, isn't there? Like-
4: I really
2: hope you've pre-entered George's quiz question there.
3: That is not (laughs) my. I've got two quiz questions for you. Okay, so number one Who are the two male players who've spent fewer than three weeks at world number one?
4: Is one of them Uh, Ferrero?
3: No, Ferrero is not one of them.
4: uh, What what year are they?
3: Not Curtin, though. No, Curtin was pretty dominant. What year are they? One of them would have been presumably around like 2003, four. The other one, a little bit before that. Pat Rafter. Pat Rafter, very good. Yeah, 1999, July 26th to August 1st. Pat Rafter had one week at world number one. (laughs)
2: Um, Moya? That's incredible. I love
3: Moya, very good. Two weeks at world number oh, one. Oh,
2: very Carlos good. Carlos
3: Moya. Okay, so that was question number one.
2: Uh, what I love about... Sorry, what I love about that is that Carlos Moya still gets referred to as former world number one, like constantly.
3: He had, had two weeks there, James. It's a big achievement. Um, it's more than me. So if Medvedev does become the third Russian to be world number one, four nations will have had three or more number ones in history. Which countries are they?
4: So, say the question again.
3: So if... Medvedev would become the third Russian to become world number one. There are already four nations who've had three number ones in the men's game or more. Well,
2: USA has to be one.
3: USA are top with six. Uh,
2: Who else has had multiple? Spain.
3: Australia's Australia's right. John Newcomb, Pat Rafter and Leighton Hewitt. I thought they wouldn't have done it, but the the cheeky Mm. wink from Pat has saved them. Who, who else did you say there?
2: And Spain must, Spain must, Spain must be the other one. Yeah,
3: Spain is. There's one more after Spain, but yeah, it's Moya, Ferrero, Nadal. Uh, one last one.
2: Oh, uh, one more. Uh, Probably I mean France. Obvious. No, Germany. Not France. Germany. Not. Germany. Peace, um. Uh, this is. It's, it's gonna annoy me if I don't get this as well. Sweden.
3: Sweden. Born Bjorg, Matt. Yeah. Stefan Edberg. Volandi. Like, yeah.
4: Really? I thought Sweden. I, th- I yeah. forgot about Volandi. I thought they, they only had Borg and, Med, uh, Borg and Edberg. There you go.
3: Pretty...
2: Do you happen to know off the top of your head how, uh, do you have in front of you how many weeks Volandi spent at number one?
4: Well, oh, he was there for a long while. Yeah. He was he pretty on, dominant.
3: Uh, I don't mm. have it right in front of me, I'm sure sure we can maybe find it um, at some point.
2: I mean, the stat does exist, yeah. but anyway.
3: At least 20. Not a stint of 20. Okay, that's
2: reasonable. I'm the okay. credit.
3: So, well done to all those world number ones. Moving on to another former world number one, Andy Murray. He's... Had a bit of a mixed week, I would say again. We were a bit worried about how he'd get on against Bublik, given he'd just beaten Alexander Zverev to win a title. Went on to lose to Felix auger Um, He's carrying on with Valverdu and Colin Fleming um, on an interim basis. This is what he's kind of said about his coaching situation. I'm just trying to get a more permanent solution so that I can have consistency in terms of the things that I'm working on. Because having different messages from people who are working with you each week is not ideal. Calvin, you're someone who has fairly intimate knowledge of player coaching relations. What do you think is stopping Murray finding that right person? How hard is it to kind of build that connection? He's obviously had a few little stints with people over the last three months what's the biggest barrier in in kind of settling into a relationship and want to take it forward in the long run
4: i think there's a lot of um a fair few barriers and i think it might make it difficult for him to get anybody in that position that as we've said before and look i got heaps of respect for the man but um and this is not really a criticism because it's also one of the reasons why he's had the career he has he he's a bit of a know-it-all. like He thinks he knows more than most coaches, but in fairness, he probably does. Um, And I think he sort of quite likes um, proving them wrong. Um, So I think that there's an element of that. And because within that, then, I think, as we've said before, he quite likes yes-men to come in and and do the job. Um, He's also going to have to get somebody who he can abuse openly in front of thousands of people and millions watching on TV. Um, his mum plays a part, I think. Um, his mum has a very specific idea of what a great coach is. And she's often been right as well. Um, and I guess the next one is that whoever he employs from a career point of view, they don't know how long they're getting. And they might not... It might be an issue as to if they think they can get much more out of him as well. I think that's another thing. What What his... What is his goal? What are his goals, and are those goals reachable in the opinion of any coach who he wants to take? Um, so, yeah, I think that he's it might be difficult for him to find somebody. I'd say.
3: So he's he's back in the top one hundred now. I mean, there's quite an interesting insight into his own assessment when you're speaking there about these goals, Calvin. From this is further what he said about his tennis. I really feel like my tennis can be a lot better. I don't feel like I lost because i was really struggling with my movement but i believe that my tennis can improve providing i put in the right work and consistently work on the right things for a period of time it probably won't happen overnight because some of the mistakes i've been making have been happening for 18 months or so so it takes a bit of time to break those habits i'll need to put a lot of work in on them to change that now we've spoken a lot about your very concern with his movement and we've all of said his tennis has been quite up and down. I don't think there's any question about him not putting the work in in terms of his personality. Do no, I'd be very surprised tennis... if
4: he's not been putting the work in yeah so I thought that think a strange
3: sense of delusion and is this kind of playing into what you're saying about from a coach's perspective? What can you change for him now?
4: I, I guess though, tennis players are a bit like that. Winners are a bit like that, but they think that the, the the rationale is always I need to get back and work harder. And that's what makes them great as they are. But to the outside world, you look and you think, well, you've already been pretty much maxing out what, what you can do. Um, but I, th- I think, he, you know, I'm not saying he can't get any better. I, I think he probably can if he managed to find somebody who could help him along that. But the issue then comes is, is he willing to listen and communicate properly with the person who that might be, which he's found difficulty in and, I I found the last one a bit strange. The the was he German or Dutch? The last guy.
3: Um, yeah.
4: But I th- I found it strange that like nobody else really seemed to think that guy was all that great. It's not like we we'd found like a coach who universally everyone thinks yeah that's a good coach. The people I spoke to were all a bit yeah meh, you know he likes his data. Which again, this is a strange thing. I've I've said this before on the pod. That strange thing with Murray, his mindset. That when he said a a while ago, when he was playing challenges, he found it difficult playing in challenges because he doesn't have any data on the players that he's playing against. And you think you're Andy Murray, like you you don't need you don't need data to beat the world number two hundred and ten, like you know. But I think in, in his own mindset, that's the way he's based his career over the last. 10, 15 years that he thinks they have to go through this video tagging sort of process and, and find scouting reports about all these players. He, he, he doesn't have to. So that, that maybe hints at a bit of, you know, he might have to change his mindset.
3: James, two months into the season, having watched Andy Murray, what he's doing, one, one title, oh, sorry, reach one final, not so great, perhaps everywhere else. What as much change about your season long assessment of him and, how important is a coach in achieving what you think he can?
2: I don't think it's the worst thing in the world if he's getting lots of different voices into to camp. I mean, I think it's interesting that he's saying, I don't want to show me a different thing each week because I was under the impression that it kind of was what he was trying to do. And he was trying to canvas lots of opinions. Um, I think probably from what I've heard and from what people have said, he still thinks he can be world number one and he's having a hard time finding a coach who believes him. Um, you know, because that does take an extraordinary amount of belief and you kind of have to be a little bit anti uh, anti evidence based to be honest, because why would you believe that if if you've seen everything that's happened over the last couple of years? Um, as I don't know. I mean Colin Fleming is someone he's known for a long, long time, of course. Um similarly Danny Valverde has a very good reputation in Britain and you know, has has worked here a lot before. So there's no shortage of, of reasons that these are good people. But, you know, it doesn't really matter how many different coaches you get in. The, the guy's still got to be able to play top-level tennis for a reasonable period of time and staying fit. And, you know, I've, I've yet to see that that can be true. He's still the world number 89 or whatever he is, however good he's been in the past.
3: Well, James, we mm. will wave goodbye to you at this point thank you very much for joining us again and uh taking aim at poor old andy murray and his lower ranking at the moment calvin and i will be back very shortly for part two
0: judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumpercasino.com.
1: it's my little escape
0: now judy's the life of the party
1: oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon
0: whoa Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. Eighteen plus terms and conditions apply.
3: See website for details. Welcome back to part two of the Love Tennis podcast. James Gray has departed. Calvin Beton is still here with me, ready to tackle this week's tennis excitement. And I think it's fair to say, Calvin, we're probably quite pleased with one of the results. Um, Felix auger seen winning his first ATP title. I think it's fair to say you and I have both been a little bit disappointed with him in previous years in terms of not kind of quite getting over the line. But he beat Sissipas today to end a run of eight st- straight losses in finals in straight sets and being pretty comfortably so quite
4: encouraging yeah I mean I guess I've only been a little bit uh, critical of him because I do think he's the the real next superstar in men's tennis I think he could carry the game he has everything that's required to carry I think he's a brilliant player I think he's a phenomenal player but he's just had my criticism of him as that is that Yes, there's certain specific areas of his game that I don't think he's necessarily improved enough, and and one of them, to be fair, was him not influencing the playing finals enough and not doing well enough in finals. But this is feels like a real big step for him. This is although it's only a two fifty, he's had to beat one of the best players in the world at the minute to win it. So, and he's had to beat one of the he's beaten in the same tournament. He's beat one of the top twenty players of all time, and another one who's one of the top three or four best players in the world right now. So
3: he lost his opening match of the season to Taylor Fritz. Since then, he's only lost to Daniel Medvedev, winning the ATP Cup, winning in Rotterdam and reaching the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. He's someone we thought could start to step up, should dominate, as you've just said there, in the top 10 what do you think he'll be come the end of the season? Now are we thinking this is his time to suddenly start pushing on being top five? Is he that level yet, or is it we're we getting ahead of ourselves?
4: I, I still think there's some areas of his game that aren't. Um, it's difficult to say because I don't want to say some areas of his game that aren't top five because there are players who are currently in the top in the top five or have been in the top five who have big holes in their game. Like one of the things I think that. Felix isn't that great at his volleying, but he's a twenty times better volleyer than Alex Veres. Um, there's there's my weekly popper, Alex Veres volleys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
4: but, it's take um, him
1: an hour to get there.
4: <laughs> and, um, it's becoming a weekly thing, isn't it? Um, and um, I'll just say it for good measure because we know what everyone's wanting. Yes, he does have the worst volleys in the men's top two hundred, um, but um, and. Like he, he does, none of his weaknesses are as big a weakness I would say as um, Berrettini's backhand for example um, but I do think that Felix could be world number one. I, I, I think he could be world number one and multiple Grand Slam winner but I think if he's going to do that he has to improve um, his second serve and he has to improve his volleying and he has to improve his returning um, and it's not It's not that he can't do any of those things. It's just that in the key moments, those things tend to desert him a little bit. Um, He tends to be a little bit passive on return at key moments. I think as we saw against Medvedev when he was two sets to love up. Was he two sets to love up at Aussie Open? He was, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think he went a little bit, I'm just going to get the balls in play. And again, we come back to his, I think people think I'm often having been a bit critical of some players, but we're talking about the real elite level of the game here. We're not talking about junior ITF level or lower down in the men's futures. We're talking about the very highest, the very highest level of the game. And I think in those areas, his return, his second serve and his net play, Felix has still got a little bit to go, but I do think he will get there. And I I do think he'll be world number one.
3: You mentioned there, it's kind of in key moments. I mean, Technically, we've kind of said his second serve is perhaps problematic, but I've seen him have very strong return games and he obviously has an excellent first serve. Is it as much the pressure kind of on him in those moments? Is it is that a mental problem? And does that then worry you about his future more than maybe like a small technical issue
4: might? Yeah, it's strange because it's not like I wouldn't... I wouldn't call them weaknesses. I don't know what they'd call them, but they're the areas of his game, That the volleying is a bit of a weakness. I think, I don't think he's a great volleyer. The way he's, he's, he has some technical issues on his volleys that aren't great. Um, and I think one of those is he's been overcoached on his volley. He doesn't, he's not as adaptable as you need to be at the net. Um, I don't think he's almost like he has a, a model of a volley that he hits regardless of what type of volley he's trying to hit. And you can't do that. You have to have, about 25 different volleys at the net, and he tends to try and play the same shape with each one. The second serve and the return, they're more... The second serve, I think, is a little bit on terms of feel and variation of what he has with it. It's not like Zverev's second serve was 12 to 18 months ago where he'd just be throwing in 25 double faults in a, in a match. Um, it's more that you don't rely... You can't really rely on it in the real key moments for the... The physical specimen that he is, it doesn't quite give him enough, I don't think. The return, I, th- I think it's it's more a tactical thing. He gets a little bit passive on it.
3: You said before multiple slam winner, which is obviously quite a vague term, but what, what's his upper limit? What's his lower limit in terms of slam wins? Or perhaps lower is zero, but I, I think we do think he will get over the line at some point.
4: Look, I, I don't think we're going to see in this next generation, I don't think we're going to see anybody getting 10 slams. I don't, I don't think any of them will. I think there's a capability of some of those players to get to seven or eight. And I think he's one of those if, if he sorts those areas of his game out. But at the same time, every single one of those players who I'm talking about also has areas of which they have to sort out as well. Which may lead to us seeing numerous of them on free and never sorting out those areas.
3: Could you give us a few names of who you're seeing in that seven or oh. bracket?
4: Yeah, they're, they're not. I'm not really sticking my neck out, but I'm talking about City Pass, Zverev, Medvedev's already got one, um, Alcaraz. I think it's those. I, I think we'll see if 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 tennis, if male tennis plays out as I think it will over the next two to three years, I think we'll see a top top five of Felix, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Alcaraz, Medvedev, with a couple more just below who could sneak in with, with the odd win, like Shapovalov. I, I've got to admit, I'm not as confident about Sinner being there as I was a year ago. Um, I think that he's got some major problems that I think might might see him stall where he is now
3: interesting um, okay let's let's move on to his opponent quickly Stefano Sissipas I mean I think it'd be easy to look at this final and think okay he really struggled against Felix earlier in his career felt like he'd turned that rivalry around and was getting some good results but on the flip side this is a guy who's had elbow surgery reached the semis of Australia and a final in his first two tournaments of the season are we confident he's kind of shaken off the kind of bad form there was last season and pretty happy he'll be competing for the Slams further in the year? Or Are we... Are there worries?
4: I'll say this this on City Pass and, and Felix that I don't know whether people know this, but when Felix came through as a junior, he was a phenom of the like that you don't see very often at all from sort of 14, 15. And there's nothing that terrifies slightly older juniors than seeing that. If you're 16... And suddenly there's a 14-year-old on the scene who's bigger and stronger and faster than you are. That terrifies players, and it, it stays with them for a while. So I think there was a little bit of a residue with that. And then Pass just got bigger, and Felix kind of stalled. So I think that sort of explains why he got over that little hump with Felix. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think now, it's, in case anyone doesn't know, I think when Felix won the US Open when he was 16 and he was he was termed by i forget who it was but it was one of the, one of the best coaches in the world said that he was already the best athlete that has ever played the game and that was when he was 16 i thought that was a bit of a stretch i still think we're maybe looking at monfee's as that but um but felix is definitely in there um well, i forgot your original question now george, uh, george. <laughs> waffled on of it there basically
3: do we think Sisyphus is kind of over the problems. He had the second half last season, good start to this year, considering the elbow surgery or still problems. Yeah,
4: that's, that's it. Yeah, I, I think he's over the problems that he had last year and is back to the problems that he had before that, of being a really excellent tennis player who just throws in mad results um, and can't seem to win when he really needs to win.
3: Do you expect that to be a trend that carries on in his career or are you still like he'll he'll get four slams. no he's
4: no he'll he'll get I just, look again i think whether he'll get over that or not i don't know but he will win grand slams i'm absolutely certain of that um i think yeah, out of all those players who i just listed i'd fancy that it might be him and felix who are the, the best two out of those so we might see Sort of seen a final today of the future of men's tennis.
3: I imagine if James was here, he'd be desperate to shove Alcaraz down our throats. Um, but
4: yeah, I'd, I'd 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 have Alcaraz in there as well. To be fair, um, again, some some areas for things that Alcaraz got to get better. at. His second serve is nowhere near good enough just yet. Um, but and I think he's all. I think Alcaraz might struggle on the faster surfaces as well. But um, whereas the other two guys won't although you could argue that felix might struggle on the real slow surfaces um as well but um yeah i'd I'd say that that'd be my pyramid uh probably th- those three uh, but again i do think alcaraz has got to um he's a little bit younger as well i yeah. think is he two years younger than felix yeah i think so um yeah so maybe three years yeah. younger i don't know Um, But, yeah, so it seems strange, doesn't it, that, like, we're we're talking about the next generation, and then are we saying that, for example, Zverev is in the same generation as Alcaraz? Yeah. And there's maybe five or six years there, is there?
3: Yeah, Um, and Medvedev's probably even a nudge older than that, so he feels... Yeah,
4: Medvedev's a 96, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's interesting whether they are actually the same generation. Having said that, Federer is five years older than Nadal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, or is he? Is he six years older than Nadal?
3: He might be six years older than Djokovic. Five.
4: Yeah, six years older than Djokovic. Yeah, and we count them as the same generation. So, yeah. Um. Yeah.
3: Let's move on to some high-ranked women. Um, we've kind of spoken about there uh, that we think Sissipas and Felix are guys who are going to win slams, but there's a very informed... Uh, a net in the women's game, or well, contivate, isn't it? And they, someone tells us off on the podcast. Yeah. I pronun- pronounce that wrong every time. So early correction without change again. Um, she's in incredible form and has won twenty matches indoors in a row. She fought back to beat Maria Sakkari to win in Saint Petersburg. Now up to a career high world number six. She's someone very full of confidence, and at twenty six, kind of approaching her peak however not quite done it at the slams yet i think there's one quarterfinal in her career and hasn't been past the third round over the last 18 months what yeah are you i really find on her i find
4: these women's i don't know, are the women's called 250s or they have a different they narrative? are
3: now yeah they've kind yeah, of yeah. realigned i them
4: find line. them really really odd because we're almost getting to the stage where like the, the very top players don't play many of them at all do they? Like, Osaki, you don't see playing many of them. Mm. Barty has, I guess with COVID, Barty hasn't played much of anything for the last two years. Um, you, you, you know, so it's it's a bit odd, but so you're getting these players who kind of clean up them, and she's kind of done that pretty well, but um, I, I really don't see her competing in the slams, if I'm honest. Um, I think she's kind of the best of best of the B League. Um, I think I'd still fancy any of the, the players who we risk list regularly. Um, I find I'd fancy any of those guys to beat them, beat her in a slam.
3: It's quite an interesting point you've made there because there is a bit of a degree of, I suppose, players who just aren't operating on the same tour, isn't there? And I suppose that's true of both tours, to be fair. I mean, you know, you've really got no... <laughs> that just operates at the slams now and the, the odd 500 and Masters. But and other guys I mean, plugging week, in, week
4: out. I guess it's a bit different in the men's because Djokovic is 35 and Adal 35, Federer is 40. You know, you can, they're not going to be turning out every week, but you tend to get, you know, Zverev plays quite a few 250s. You see him popping up. Pass obviously being in the final this week. Um, you know, so those guys tend to do it. You've now got a situation where Murray plays a lot of them. because so he's yeah. not played anything for a couple of years. So you get, you kind well, of get a bit of that. A
3: stark as the outline then, I guess we're saying here, to be honest. Sorry? Yeah. So Asaka's the outlier here then, isn't she? No,
4: because I think Barty doesn't play loads of them, does she? And and they don't... I, I maintain that the... I'm going to get into a little rant here about how the tours operate. I maintain that one of the problems that the women's tour has is they try and do it the same as the men's. And I don't think there's enough... I wish they wouldn't have as many events. I kind of wish the men wouldn't have as many events, to be honest. I don't think you need four tournaments a week running on the same tour. But... The women's, I think, would benefit if they had less events and everyone played them um, and I, and ran it almost as a different type of tour if you just had, say, 16 tournaments plus the slams. And I think you'd get more funding, you'd get more marketing, you'd, get more, you'd be able to sell it better as a TV product and that kind of thing. I, I don't think there's such a demand for having as many women's events as they have. And, and that, I hope I'm not coming across as sexist or anything like that I do think the women's event could sell better in that way the men's I don't think helps like I said I don't think it helps that they have too many but they do still seem to fill stadiums most of the time and they get quite a lot of attention and they get the big players playing
3: next week's probably quite close to what you'd envisage happening um, on the women's tour we've got 8 of the top 11 involved Sabalenka Sviantek, Padosa Jumbo, Konservite, Krachikofa, Muguruza, and Danielle Collins. Um, I'm going to read you a few first rounds and get you to give me some picks because it is a pretty stacked draw and there's some pretty tasty first yeah. rounders. So I'm going to go for Petra Kvitsa versus Camilla Gheorghi. Uh
4: Kvitsa isn't in great form, is she? Um, Again, I come back to it, I don't like predicting women's tennis results because um, anything can happen. Um, I will pick Georgie in that one.
3: Sophia Kennan. Speaking of someone not grateful <laughs> Sophia Kennan versus... I've already
4: picked... I've already picked... Before you tell me the opponent, I've already ah, picked
3: the well, It's against Yelena Ostapenko, who's also very <laughs> up and down.
4: <laughs> still pick Ostapenko in that, to be honest.
3: Uh, Daria Kasatkina versus Igor Sviontek.
4: I mean that's that's an interesting that's a pretty good tie actually. Um, a good match. It feels one takes a better player. All right. Allison Risk versus
3: Simona Halep.
4: Yeah, Halep I think still wins that.
3: Coco Gauff versus Jessica Pegula.
4: I guess that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I still think Gauff. Yeah, I'm. I'm <sighs> it's difficult because the the form in the none of these women, female players seem to be, have any sort of form. They can all win at any stage or lose first round any stage. So I'm generally going to pick whoever is, I think is the better player.
3: <laughs> Barbara, Kričikova or Caroline Garcia.
4: Kričikova, I think. Wins
3: that. that's, I think that's probably the one that's most straightforward on paper in terms of yeah. form versus, but Garcia, I mean, on a day is very talented.
4: Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but again, I, we come back to this thing. Like you say, what was it? Three, seven out of the top ten, or eight of the top eleven? Did you say eight
3: of the top eleven? Yeah, seven of the
4: top. Yeah, and again, but it's the 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 two big stars are not in it, mm. are they? It's. Um, I mean, I'll give. It'd be interesting to see when Goff breaks through. What what she does because Goff tends to play a lot. She plays a lot of the two fifties and that kind of thing. Whereas Barty and Osaka, don't. Um, Although Osaka used to do on the way up,
3: you know, it's one to watch indeed. I, just in my notes on this section, by the way, <clears throat> I thought it was mildly amusing that Emma Raducanu has risen to risen to world number twelve now, um, by virtue of right. everyone else doing <laughs> so badly that they've dropped. Um, I think it's only what one place climb this week, but that, but that's kind of I suppose it, that's the great advantage of virtually all your points coming the US Open and shows she could be a top 10 player on a fairly average first half of the season, even if only for a short period of time.
4: It's interesting, actually, because I don't know whether we were going to talk about this later on uh, while we're on the women's, but Katie Bolter won a tournament today. Um, after, after, I think she won it on her 12th match point. Um, and she's like right now, I think her rankings is like 115 or something or 125. And I was talking with a couple of coaches earlier on as she'd won it and one of them just couldn't believe that she'd actually she was actually that high because he was basically saying she doesn't seem to have won a load of matches in the last two years and then I sort of said yeah but she hasn't but the ones she has won have been at big tournaments she won a round at Wimbledon um I think she she qualified at the US Open and I think she's qualified and won rounds at a couple of Masters Series or something so I, I I think with the rankings, it kind of depends where you get your points, doesn't it? And yeah. she's of that ranking now, and she's barely got anything to defend until the grass. So um, you could have another. You know, she, she could be back in the top one hundred pretty soon. I think do you it's think, good to see her winning again.
3: Do you think going back to Radicani briefly? Do you think she'll make up the two thousand points at the U.S. Open elsewhere up to that point? Can she hit two thousand points? outside of that, so that when she gets to that stage and they're about to drop off, it's not a complete disaster, or do you, yeah?
4: I don't know, you know. I'm really split on that one. I mean,
3: it is a lot of points. It's a
4: lot of points, and she's not been in any form. That's another thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, you look at every match since then. If you didn't, like, if you take the US Open out, which was seven months ago now, was it seven months, six months ago, like, and you'd only watch the match that she's played since, and you go, can she make up 2,000 points in the next six months? You'd have to go, like, probably not, yeah. wouldn't you? <laughs> Again, women's tennis, I don't know. Um, I think, look, when the clay comes along, I don't know if she's going to be a, a great clay court player, um, if I'm honest. So I think things get a bit tough then. You Imagine you'd fancy her to maybe... Ride a bit of the grass, but she can probably. She didn't have much going on the grass up until Wimbledon, and she's only got a fourth round to def. She got a fourth round or a quarter to defend at Wimbledon, fourth round. Yeah. Um, and then lead up to the U.S. Open. Yeah, so I could see where she could do it. I could also see a situation where she doesn't. So, doing one of your classic uh, sitting on the fence there, George.
3: I was just. I think probably. Um tournaments like Indian Wells and Miami seem like ones that she could potentially have a, a good bash at if she can get into some form by the yeah I mean look, I she's points tour
4: I think there's so many matches in the women's on the women's tour that are straight 50-50s that and each one of them being a 50-50 or just out of a 50-50 that it, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if she does get the 2000 points easy equally wouldn't surprise me if she doesn't win Ten matches before then, um, so yeah, that, I, don't know, I don't know. Ten matches might do it though. She wins them all at the French Open. Yeah, she <laughs> could,
1: could, could, yeah, needs seven now.
4: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, defend, Yeah, makes fourth round of Wimbledon. Defends her. Um, defends her fourth round. Three matches there and seven wins at US Open. Uh, French Open. She might win the US Open again.
3: You never know. You never know. Um, let, let, let's stick sort of briefly with women's tennis but a bit in a more abstract way um it was quite interesting story first broken by Stuart Fraser of the Times this week um about how Wimbledon have brought a kind of level playing field in terms of costing men's and women's finals Uh, And in their great march towards equality, they've raised the cost of the women's final by £40 a ticket to bring it on to parity with the men's final. Now, I suppose on the one hand, we'll probably say it's great that these uh, events should be seen kind of level. But it would have been nice if they'd have dropped the prices, wouldn't it? You know, brought the men's down to the women's. What's What's your take on this, Calvin?
4: Just a phenomenal blag. A phenomenal <laughs> shakedown from the All England Club on that. I mean, they're, they're, we talk a lot about equality, and we're all, you know, everyone on Love Tennis podcast is is definitely in favour of equality. I think if you if you took five hundred people who are who like tennis and who were all keen on equality, and you listed and you asked them to list the top ten ways that they could see equality as reaching equality, I don't <laughs> think any one of the five hundred would list in their top ten that they wanted the Wimbledon finals, women's final tickets putting up in price. So, I mean, that is some spin that they've managed to put on that just so that they can get a little bit of extra money. There's, there was nobody complaining. We're not paying enough for tennis at Wimbledon.
3: <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously totally agree with that and it, not to labor the point too much, but and I guess Wimbledon tickets are all fairly expensive anyway, but, This always just does strike me as a further gripe to pricing people out of the game who it's not great for the kind of long-term interest. I mean, I suppose it is a bit different for a final than, say, maybe a grounds pass, but the the prices are rising across the board, aren't they? And It does give a a reach for greed to me.
4: Yeah, look, and as well, they've also... It's not a great time to do it because the Wimbledon's women's finals haven't been great in the last decade. There's not been many good ones at all, and, and there's been some pretty short ones, as well. So you're going, what is it, 240 now or 200 that they've gone up?
3: 240.
4: Yeah, 240. And I think some of those matches have lasted less than an hour. And it's 240 per ticket. And you've generally, I don't know whether people know this, but generally at Wimbledon, you've got to buy pairs of tickets. That's how they go, especially for the finals. So you're, you're shelling out 500 quid for less than an hour's worth of tennis. And I don't, uh, yeah, I, I can't see any, there's no, logical reason for doing it other than making more money for the All England Tennis Club. <laughs> Just as a,
3: a, a slight counterpoint on the hour, I'm sure people from uh, Wimbledon would come back at you and say, well, they get the men's doubles final as well. You know, there's, there's lots of tennis that your finals tickets does bring, do bring you, but I suppose if um, it'd be interesting to see what they would cost up doubles matches these days, as much as we love oh. doubles, what they'd sell them for on their own right now.
4: It's a good job you get the men's doubles at the end of it because the women's, the, the women's, doubles, the women's singles finals haven't been given great value of late.
3: Let's let, let's move on to a few of the other events that have happened this week as a, a kind of quick roundup. Um there was an ATP record set this week, and this is again another thing I think James will be very disappointed to not be here to dissect, uh, given his loathing of John Isner. Um John Isner. And Riley O'Pelker in Dallas, they broke the ATP tiebreak record 24 22, which is ludicrously high scoring um, for a tiebreak. What was what, the highest score tiebreak you've ever been involved in as a player, Calvin, or as a
4: coach? Um, Definitely not that. Luke, who I coach last year, won a deciding tiebreak in Greece. I think, eighteen sixteen. 16 um, I think his opponent had maybe seven match points and Luke won it on his first. Um, Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be the longest I've seen, um, to be honest. Um, yeah, there will have been longer ones, I'm sure, that I've even watched and been involved in. Um, but, um, yeah, nothing like that. I bet... I bet there were more... Po- I bet that's one of the few tiebreaks you'd see, though, where the total number of points by far outweighs the total number of shots that were played. <laughs> <laughs> um, which Um I guess it can't. It can't, actually. That's well, it can't,
3: but yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. They'd probably be very, you know, within, yeah. like, five or something. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted to... I mean, th- this really was the, the serve bot tournament i think really so this this was a little run in this section so you had sam query versus kevin anderson round one kevin anderson versus john isner round two john isner versus Vasek pospasil quarterfinals john isner versus riley apelka semifinals i mean can you ever remember a greater run of serve bot battles than that no (laughs) i
4: mean Just imagine having tickets for that. (laughs) Every day. I guess most of them are American. So like maybe the Americans loved it, but I mean, that would be grim tennis. That'd be like, we thought there was this talk. I remember in like the the mid to late nineties, that men's tennis was on the way down big time because of the number of big servers who were around and it never quite materialized into that. But this is kind of a throwback to that. The sort of, but even then, those guys could. It felt like those guys could play better than these guys can. Like Krychek, Richard Krychek, could play. It was going a, a great volley, really nice backhand. Filipusi's could play. Like I've, I've seen Opelka and that type of player, and they just don't. They don't even look like they're interested in playing ground strokes. <laughs> I I remember I remember like I remember watching a, a challenger match once with Ivo Karlovic, and he literally. On the return games, he, he tanked. He had no interest. He'd try on the first point. You could see he had some interest in the first point. And if he won it, he'd get involved a bit. If ever he went 15 love down on the other guy's serve, he just wouldn't try at all. And he's, his sole objective was to get it to a tiebreak. And it was almost like a bit of a, a game of roulette. I'll get it to a tiebreak and I'll see what happens. And it feels a bit like that with with Opelka and Isner and that type of play. Kevin Anderson can play a bit, to be fair. He's the best player out of all those, those lot, I think.
3: I mean, Riley Apelka's has played eight tiebreaks in this tournament. Six of them have been tiebreaks. So he, he yeah. really, clearly fancies his chances at roulette. I mean, the interesting thing about this tournament, all jokes aside, around the, the serve box, is actually a little bit of a leaning towards American men's tennis at the minute. You've got Opelka, who's their number one, And and to be fair to Apelka is kind of performing at quite a good level, just outside the top twenty, might just about. The guy he's just beaten in the final, Jensen Brooksby, is probably the one people are most excited about. Still, you know, we're not looking like a Carlos Alcaraz or something, but within America, he's their kind of next big hope. It's a weird way that American tennis has gone. Well, I suppose not that weird considering how it's just dipped in popularity but are you surprised they've not produced anything better and and what do you think of guys like Brooksby I mean I know you like TFO as well but they're not maybe as good as we think a lot of the other younger guys are
4: I mean the crazy thing about that with Brooksby is his biggest weakness is his serve and he's in there with all these, those serve bots and he's not got a very good serve has he um he's a really good all-round player really skillful lots of skills, plays a bit different. I'd enjoy watching Jensen Brooksby. You know, I'd, I'd enjoy watching a match with Brooksby against TFO. Um, but um, they, it's, it's quite a sort of wide study as to why they've not produced anything really. Um, it's a strange country in that. They went through this period where, I'm not definitely sure they're out of it, although it's better than what it was, where none of their players had good backhands. They all had rubbish backhands, like Roddick, Fish, Ginepri all those guys were were pretty bad backhands um, and big forehands, big serves. Um, And I think it's the way that they're very... American coaching is very technical-led. There's not much skill involved, not much open play. They like getting the basket out, hitting a load of big forehands, hitting a load of big serves and then that kind of thing. And I think that's what we got. Um, It's also most of their tennis players come from Either originally or they're trained in either California or Florida, so they come from sort of two two bases really, um, and and unless they end up going to American Uni and that kind of thing, so yeah, they're, they're producing a lot of players. It feels like they've a couple of years now. It feels like they've been on sort of a comeback, but haven't had anything that you could feel could could challenge at the latter stage of the slams. Is
3: Brooks be a top ten player, top twenty, top? I don't
4: think he's a top ten player. He might sneak a top twenty at some stage. Um, I don't think you'll get into the. Just thinking, I'm just going to say, I don't think you're going to get in the top ten with a with that kind of serve. But um, Diego Schwartzman hasn't got a big serve at all, and, and he's been there. But um, you kind of get the one anomaly. Um, yeah, I I I if you just ask me, definitely yes or definitely no. I'd I'd, I'd edge toward no um, on that, but. I think he's a. I do think he's a guy who could cause good players problems.
3: On that happy note of the failure of Jensen Brooksby's career, let's call it a day. And I, it's calling it a few weeks for me because I'm I'm on holiday from Tuesday. <laughs> I would normally try and get involved from abroad as you do, Calvin. But I'm going somewhere that I suspect the internet just won't work at all. So it's not even worth trying. Um, yeah. I hear there are rumors you may get a guest helping you guys over the next couple of weeks, but you'll have to come back and uh, see if that's true. But Calvin, thank you very, very much. Um, I hope you don't miss me too much. Do you think you'll cope?
4: Um, I think we might get by, yeah. Um, But uh, (laughs) for a couple of weeks.
3: You'll certainly be happy to have James back as the main presenter, Um, less of my wooden approach. But here we are. Let's call it a happy goodbye and we'll see you all soon.